face of the planet is a man-made catastrophe. We need to sound the alarm. This is an emergency, this is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. Because if we don't act now, we risk to create an irreversible situation in which it, whatever we do in the future, we will no longer be able to limit 1.5 degrees the growth in temperature in the end of the century. And why is it so important to stay below 1.5 degrees? Because even at 1 degree, people are dying from the climate crisis. Because that is what the United Science calls for. And we're here to say to all of you, on behalf of the House of Representatives and the Congress of the United States, we're still in it. We're still in it. It seems like that connection to how people actually experience and understand climate change is often missing. And then we go, why don't more people care about climate change? Why would they? How do we decarbonize the electricity sector? Specifically, what policies do we need to get there? We generally know what we need in our technology toolkit, but we still need a framework for deployment, which is precisely what we're focusing on in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. And this is episode three in our Path to Zero series, a monthly podcast series on what it will take to reach net zero emissions by 2050, produced in partnership with the Washington, D.C.-based public policy think tank, Third Way. On this show, we're focusing on the policies we need to reach net zero. Cities and states have recently taken the lead on this front, but we can't ignore the influence of national action. So if you had your pick, what federal level climate and energy policies would you prioritize? We put that question to four experts. And rather than have them work together to identify the best policies to decarbonize the energy system, we pit them against one another in a new game we're calling Decarb Madness, the policy bracket game for climate and energy wonks who don't want to play with our future. They don't take it. March Madness just around the corner, I challenged our four experts to put together their ideal policy bracket, a list of the top five federal policies they believe will win the day, both in producing the greatest carbon reductions by 2050, but also in terms of feasibility, both politically and technologically. So first, let's introduce our contestants. On the line with me now from Princeton, New Jersey, we have Jesse Jenkins, assistant professor at Princeton with a joint appointment at the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering and the Adlinger Center for Energy and the Environment. Jesse's here. Yay. <laughs> the crowd goes wild. And then from sunny California, we have Leah Stokes, assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And here in L.A. with me, we have my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, former chief of staff at the Department of Energy, and Shane Skelton, our Republican, former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. 
Okay, guys, are you ready to go head to head in this competition? I mean, Jesse, you have a lot of deep energy system modeling expertise as a researcher at MIT and then at Harvard and now at Princeton. Are you uh, feeling good about your odds here? I'm ready to rumble. Let's do this. <laughs> I feel like Shane's the number 16 seed in all this and like Jesse and Lee are like number one seeds. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm going to be like the, I don't even know what that the 16th seeded North Dakota State Bison last year. I didn't beat Duke, but I covered the spread. Right. You're the Cinderella Cinderella team here, Shane. Let's root for the underdog. Leah, your work has become an indispensable part of this election cycle, especially because you've closely tracked and analyzed every Democratic presidential primary candidate's climate plan, or pretty much all of them. I've also appreciated your work on analyzing the Green New Deal and what that means, as well as the public support underpinning it. And we should note that you have a book coming out soon called Short-Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups and the Battle Over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the American States. How are you feeling heading into this national policy discussion? Uh, not great, because uh, Jesse always likes to tell me I'm wrong about things. So I fear <laughs> that that may happen again today on air. Very special <laughs> moment. Are you a big sports person? Because I think you, like me, are Canadian. And last time I checked in on a sports game, it was like the Toronto Maple Leafs and like... 1997. <laughs> I am not a big sports person at all. I used to say politics is my sports, but this uh, political season has definitely uh, gotten that out of my system. I'm perfectly happy to not watch any political sports anymore for the rest of my life. <laughs> yes, hear that. <laughs> Okay, so for our listeners, here's how Decarb Madness works. First, our contestants were provided with a list of 20 federal policies and asked to create their policy bracket by selecting their top five policies for decarbonizing the power sector. We're focusing specifically on the power sector in this episode. The policy list was created based on the Energy Policy Simulator, a computer model developed by Energy Innovation, a nonpartisan climate policy think tank based in the Bay Area. The open source simulator has been extensively tested and peer-reviewed by several national laboratories and top universities. The simulator uses reputable data from publicly available sources, such as the U.S. Energy Information Administration's Annual Energy Outlook, to create a business-as-usual scenario. So when users select policy options, the EPS tracks changes from the business-as-usual projections to estimate how the policy affects things like carbon emissions, energy demand, costs, and other factors. It's also free for anyone to use, so if you are inspired by this episode, you can hop online and create your own scenario and see how you fare. We'll be sure to include a link to the simulator in our show notes. So again, for the purposes of Decarb Madness, we've limited this to affecting the electricity supply only, or pretty much only. We factored in building efficiency, since that reduces electricity use. And I also threw in the ability to add in a carbon tax on fuels used in the electricity sector and carbon capture and sequestration. We put that on the list because it will have a significant effect on the electricity sector, but we should note that it would also affect some industrial emissions. So contestants picked from this list of 20, and in some cases they were asked to specify where relevant. Like if you picked a clean energy standard, how aggressive would you want that to be? How do we know Shane didn't cheat? <laughs> oh man. I mean, it's Scout's honor. <laughs> when I lose it in dramatic fashion, you'll know that I didn't cheat. Uh, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't trust him. <laughs> and Republicans. You and you shouldn't, but <laughs> nonetheless. I mean, I'm assuming everyone here didn't cheat. You have to have, it was Scout's Honor. I did total Scout's okay. Honor. Okay. <laughs> Too lazy to cheat. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your honesty. Okay. All our contestants swore to me that they did not cheat by playing around with the simulator beforehand. So everyone here will be discovering the results in real time. 
So first, we're going to have each contestant dive in and explain why they picked the policies that they picked. Then I'll step in as referee and explain how each bracket ranked based on the policy solutions tool. Then in the second half of the show, each contestant will have a chance to explain why their policy list is the most politically and technologically feasible. Is there public opinion polling that supports their policy bracket? Or is it better on cost? Or is it necessary to keep the grid stable? Finally, once we stop recording, that's where you, our listeners, come in. As soon as you hear this episode, head over to Political Climate's Twitter page, poly underscore climate, and vote for whose bracket you think is best, both in terms of carbon reductions and likelihood to pass. The ultimate winner will be announced in our next episode. Is this purely scientific? No. Is this game really designed to be like a March Madness bracket? Not really, but that's not really the point. The point here is to provide a new framework for discussing policy options. And with that, we're going to kick it off with Jesse Jenkins. Jesse, please walk us through your five policy picks. All right. Uh, so at the top of my choice uh, or top of my bracket list is a federal clean electricity sand- standard or CES, a clean electricity standard which I would have uh, ramping up to uh, all the way to 100% by 2050. And I think we can start off pretty aggressive as well. Uh, If we phase out coal over the next decade, we can cut emissions in the electricity sector by somewhere around 75% by 2030. And I think we can reach uh, 80 or 85% uh, by 2040 on our way to 100 by 2050. I think this is a pretty powerful uh, mechanism. I imagine it'll be in a lot of our brackets. Uh, And I think it's got a lot of political advantages as well because we're talking about delivering 100% clean and renewable energy and uh, just, you know, substantively for in terms of framing and discussion, offering somebody, the public, 100% of something good that we all find is popular and renewable and clean energy is deeply popular across the country is a lot more uh, saleable than 0% of something bad. So in, in a lot of ways, the CES functions just like a cap on emissions. Um, but I think it's a lot better to be promising 100% clean renewable energy than 0% dirty fossil energy, even if the uh, end outcome is, is pretty much the same. Second on my list is uh, a du- at least a doubling of uh, high-voltage high long-distance transmission uh, by 2050. And I think that doubling is important for two reasons. One, if we are going to electrify a lot of um, transportation and heating demand in order to displace fossil fuels there, we're going to see electricity demand in the country grow quite dramatically some, in a way that it hasn't really over the last couple decades. And so just meeting that growing demand is going to require reinforcements to our transmission system. But secondly, we need to tap into very low-cost, domestic, clean, renewable electricity sources. And that requires really strengthening our, our bulk grid, our tra- long-distance transmission, to tap into the best renewable resources across the country and bring those resources to where we consume electricity and also to uh, be able to tap into resources that have kind of differing and complementary profiles of production across the country so that we can smooth out some of the variability in, in renewables. So that all requires building a lot more transmission than we have in the past. And the federal government can play a big role in that, both in taking some federal siting authority, for at least for um, transmission to, say, uh, designated clean energy uh, production zones, uh, and also for subsidizing or helping defray some of the, the cost of that uh, long, distance, long distance transmission, at least until wind and solar comes online to use it and starts paying for, for that use. Uh, that was a method that worked well in places like Texas, where they built out the transmission first uh, and then let the wind and solar build out and kind of solve the chicken and egg problem there. 
Uh, third on my list is an extension of nuclear lifetimes to 80 years, wherever that's economical and, uh, and deemed to be safe by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our nuclear plants were initially licensed for 40-year lives, and nearly all of them have now been granted extensions to go on to 60 years. Uh, and the first uh, couple reactors now have re- received a secondary extension uh, for another 20 years to, to bring their operating life to 80 years. That's important because if we're going to try to rapidly cut emissions reductions, we got to make the best use of the resources that we already have. And our nuclear fleet is the largest source of clean electricity we have. It supplies about one-fifth of our electricity. And we need to be preserving that clean energy foundation as we build new wind and solar so that we can cut emissions fastest and furthest and get those cumulative CO2 emissions down fast. Once we get to 100% clean electricity, then we can start retiring those old reactors without any CO2 consequences. Um, So I think we should kind of keep them running as long as it is economic and safe to do so. And then fourth uh, is commercial building efficiency standards. Uh, You know, we had to pick one sector here as a policy, so I picked the commercial sector because it's the largest consumer uh, in this space. Um, but really, this is you know, meant to be a stand-in for smart efficiency standards that capture um, the need to make sure that when, we're, when people are making new investments in building, uh, you know, building stock uh, in their you know, the, the insulation and building shell or in new HVAC systems, that they're buying only the best, most efficient options and ideally electric options instead of uh, natural gas or oil for heat. It's much cheaper if we can replace uh, HVAC systems or windows or insulation at the time when they're upgraded uh, naturally, when the capital stock turns over, than if we kind of miss that turnover window. And if people buy a new HVAC system now, say a natural gas system, that's going to last for another 15 to 30 years, it's a lot more expensive to rip that out and replace it with, say, an efficient heat pump that's run by clean electricity a few years later. So I think efficiency standards are important. Retrofits are great too, but uh, efficiency standards are really low cost way to make sure that when we make investments, we make them in the right way and don't lock into inefficient or fossil fired um, uh, infrastructure in our for space heating and, and lighting and buildings. And then finally, to round all this out, I've picked a carbon price as well, but maybe not in the way that it's typically conceived. I put it fifth on my list, um, uh, largely because it's meant to be complementary and supportive of all the other measures. And I actually decided to try to keep the carbon price pretty low, starting at only $10 per ton in 2020 and rising pretty modestly to, say, $22 in 2030, $36 in 2040, and only $50 by 2050. And the idea here is not that the carbon price is there to drive the bulk of the emissions reductions. That's what the CES and the other policies are going to do. But that carbon price is going to help make the whole thing more efficient by starting to internalize some of the Uh, costs of environmental pollution and climate pollution into all the market transactions that occur. And I think most importantly, it's going to raise on the order of $300 billion between 2020 and 2050 just from the electricity sector. And that $300 billion can be put to use helping offset the cost of the clean electricity standard so that consumers aren't paying twice, um, so that instead uh, we're charging fossil polluters uh, for part of the, the cost of their pollution and using those costs to offset the cost of compliance with the clean electricity standard. So that improves the efficiency and the distributional outcomes so that people are paying their fair share of um, trying to meet our emissions goals. All right. Round of applause for Jesse Jenkins, our first policy bracket. I think that was like a three-point barrage of like made baskets. Let's see yeah, very hard just a lot of three-pointers. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be very hard to beat that. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish I had more sports terminology at the ready. This <laughs> we'll is going to be really we'll hard for me. <laughs> okay. Who's winning at sport ball? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's where my knowledge begins and ends. Okay, Leah, you are next up. Please walk us through your uh, policy bracket. Well, I feel pretty darn good because I almost picked the exact same thing as Jesse. I thought so we might that do that, Leah. We've been like talking too much. I <laughs> I know. As much as, you know, sometimes people criticize each other or nitpick when they're like 99% in agreement. Yeah, that's and that's probably fun. Jesse and I. Oh, yeah. We Have you looked at Twitter better. lately? Yeah, I was going to say, that's Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? The left. The left is the very good at that. Anyway, so my five points are all but one the same as Jesse's. Well, maybe one and a half are different. Uh, so, yes, I start with a carbon free electricity standard or what we usually call a clean electricity standard. I think that getting a federal clean electricity standard in place is essential because right now a lot of states have chosen to adopt renewable portfolio standards or clean electricity standards. But there's a real patchwork in terms of progress across the states. You have a state like West Virginia that's only getting 5% of its electricity supply from clean energy sources right now, or Florida, which only gets 15%. And then you have big leaders um, going ahead, like California, of course, that are getting more than 50 percent of their electricity from clean energy sources. But we need a federal law in order to bring everybody up to the same standards and make sure that we're all moving uh, fast. And this is something that advocates have been trying to do since the 1990s. And it was certainly something that was in the Waxman-Markey bill. Not very strong, mind you, in the Waxman-Markey bill. But I think that this is the real um, most important thing on my wish list, to get a clean electricity standard federally. The second thing, like Jesse, is uh, transmission capacity. I think we've probably all been very influenced by the work of Christopher Clack, who has done amazing modeling uh, with people from NOAA and elsewhere, showing that high-voltage transmission lines across the country can really smooth out the intermittency from different uh you know, sources, like if you have wind blowing at one moment over here in this state and not over there, the transmission that connects all of these different renewable energy sources can smooth out that intermittency and it can do it in a really inexpensive way. And I think that federal leadership is particularly important in transmission planning because we know that it's been really hard for uh, states or sort of local groups to go ahead and do a lot of transmission. We probably need the federal government involved to make this a really big effort across the country and to coordinate planning so that the overall grid makes sense for the entire country, not just for a given area. Uh, third on my list, like Jesse, uh, was nuclear plant lifetime extensions. I am very fearful of nuclear going offline and being replaced by natural gas, uh, or in some countries like Japan right now, by coal. Who would have thought? Um, This is what's happened when nuclear has been retired in Germany, in California, in Vermont, uh, now in Japan. And I don't think that the United States wants to walk down that same road. We have to make sure that every plant that's given a license extension is safe to continue operating. But if it is, I think that it's really important to keep the resources that we have online, like Jesse was saying. If you just think about it from a environmental perspective, we've already built these plants. They already operate. You know, 95% of the damage they're going to do is already baked in. And so keeping them open a little bit longer makes it 
allows us to not have to build as much new natural gas capacity. And now that we see this new research about how radioactive fossil fuels are, I think that that should give a lot of people pause. Um, so I'd like to keep the infrastructure we have as long as possible. Fourth, I also did efficiency, although I chose to do urban buildings, uh, residential scale rather than uh, the commercial scale. And that was because uh, it's true what Jesse said, that if you do the commercial sector, you're going to get a larger proportion of the electricity. But I think that there are equity implications here. And I think it's important that the federal government help everyday citizens uh, retrofit their homes. You can see some really amazing examples of this happening in New York, where affordable housing is being retrofitted, and it's saving a lot of electricity. And that's going to make it easier for everyday Americans to pay their energy bills. Because right now, one in three Americans are struggling to pay their energy bills. And if we do a lot of these climate policies, it's likely that energy costs will go up. So I think if the federal government makes a big push to help retrofit homes, that'll allow us to use less electricity and make it easier for everyday Americans to pay their bills. And finally, I decided fairly intentionally not to pick a carbon price. I knew that this would uh, ding me uh, from an efficiency perspective, economic efficiency in the results. Um, but I'm going to question that when we get to the next stage about why I picked it. And instead, I chose a demand response. We know that if we have a more flexible demand side, that that can help integrate a lot more renewables. And there have been some early experiments in Portland and other parts of the country showing that a flexible demand side can really help match a lot of the intermittency on the supply side. I could have picked something like batteries instead, but I thought that uh, demand response and efficiency in general is usually shown in models to be a really good bang for your buck in terms of cost versus outcomes. Uh, so those were my choices, and mostly Jesse and I agreed. So that's sort of fun. <laughs> All right. Another strong contender there. I think one thing we have to clarify is I think, Jesse, you picked, um, is it retrofits for commercial buildings, or did you pick a standard? Because there's different ways that, that uh, this model evaluates how you would make buildings more efficient. Was yours a retrofit, Jesse, or was it electrification standard? So I picked standards for new uh, new buildings or new um, you know HVACs or lighting or things like that rather than retrofits. They're both important, but I deliber- I went back and forth on this and intentionally picked the standards uh, for lower cost. You know, some of the building stock that we have now will still be around in in 2050, but a lot of it will also turn over, and it's a lot of you know almost all the existing you know heating and lighting systems will have to be replaced at least once between now and 2050. So my strategy was that we should make sure that as soon as they're, they have to be replaced, they're replaced with the most efficient and ideally electric uh, option available uh, so that we can uh, make sure that it's, it's you know, reasonably affordable to do that right when the investment's already made. It's not that much more expensive to do an efficient heat pump than to just replace your gas boiler, for example. Uh, so if you can get people at the moment when they're making that investment already and just require them to, to make a smarter investment um, or a cleaner investment, then that can be really cost effective. All right. Keep that distinction in mind, listeners, who will come back around. All right, Brandon, uh, let's hear your uh, your policy bracket next. Wow, these are two tough acts to follow. I know. And you're fiercely competitive, so I'm sure <laughs> that is very you're true. sweating it. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Um, so number one, I agreed with both Leah and Jesse on the carbon-free electricity standard for all of the reasons they outlined. I mean, my sort of operating approach to this generally is 
clean up the grid, electrify everything. Right. And so that fits within uh, that framework. But it's interesting to me that you all picked 100%. Like no one thinks that like 98 is realistic. You're like, we're going to do it all. I think we can. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, California is at 50% already. Uh, and this is the fifth largest economy in the world. So can we get to 100% by 2050? We better. <laughs> All we right. shouldn't be able All to right. do that. Only if we adopt my five policies. <laughs> Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. Right. Right. Spoiler alert. You'll be <laughs> you'll be disappointed. <laughs> um, Upset. <laughs> second, I picked uh, grid scale electricity storage. Um, I thought that would be important to enabling our pathway to 100 uh, percent carbon free electricity standard. Um because of the inter intermittent uh, nature of wind and solar, being able to store and dispatch that as firm power, I think would be help us get on that path and make it um, uh, much more easier to do. Uh, three and four. So, you know, as part of cleaning up the grid, we also, uh, you know, the, the big buckets for greenhouse gas emissions are, you know, power generation, uh, transportation, uh, and buildings. And so I wanted to advocate for policies that, uh, would cause greenhouse gas emission reductions from buildings. So my next three are within the building sort of framework. Um, I chose building energy efficiency standards for both commercial and urban residential. So that counted as two of mine. Um, I thought this was sort of low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, new builds, it's easier to uh, adapt uh, to those uh, standards. Uh, in many of these cases, um, it can be cheaper because you don't have to build the natural gas infrastructure to get um, you know to the building or the home. So that can reduce the cost of you know uh, going all electric uh, in in the home from the outset or the or the building. Um, and I think this is a good place for the federal government to be to establish those standards and let the private sector come up with creative ways to adapt to those standards. And then five. Uh, I chose retrofit existing buildings, um, and I chose commercial there. It was really hard to choose between commercial and residential, uh, but I thought commercial, we could go faster, um, and, uh, you know, I really, I really like, liked to have done both, but you limited me to five, Julia, so yeah. it was really a toss-up <laughs> didn't want to get there. too unwieldy here, but... but I uh, liked what Leah had to say about the equity piece on homes and having people be able to participate this in, in this as well. Right. Shane, you're up. Run us through your top five. All right. So the meat of my argument is going to come in the next segment here where we talk about practicality. And, um, you know, a, a lot of what I wanted to do is is give control uh, to people. Uh, obviously, it's not all of it, but I think it's always more fun to give someone something than it is to tell them that they have to change their behavior or, to, or take something away. So with that said, my number one is demand response. I love demand response programs. Uh, utilities all sort of you know tailor them differently, but the idea that you can just behave differently, not in a way that that harms your lifestyle, but you can just behave differently as far as when you use your appliances, um, you know, if you have an EV or something, when you charge your EV, but and then get in some forms rebated from your utility. In some forms, it's going to be you know in the form of, of lower costs. But I just love the idea of helping balance the grid by making better day-to-day -day decisions that don't disrupt your lifestyle or make life more difficult or more costly. They save you money, they help you form better habits, and they help balance the grid. So it's sort of a, a lot of power for any individual to wield if we're all sort of doing it on a design system that, that, that sort of optimizes when power is used. Um, number two, grid-scale storage. I have long believed 
that um, there is just no point in talking about clean energy standards uh, or renewable portfolio standards in any significant way without a lot of storage deployment. I just think that uh, we can generate, uh, you guys probably, everyone in this room knows better than I do what our capability is to generate renewable capacity, but ultimately it doesn't really matter in an efficient grid if you don't have the ability to store um, at the at the grid uh, level. Um, rebates for efficient products. Uh, I know there's been a lot of talk about this uh, in this um, or, or in one way, shape, or, or form in the efficiency discussion today, but I always want the cleanest product possible. And I don't think that's because I work in this space with uh, you know clean energy and the environment, but I just think it always makes sense to save money on your monthly bills. And it always makes sense if you're buying something new to buy a better, more quality product. And I think it is unfair that certain people just have to take the lowest cost um, product on the market. Now, if you look at it as a, as a matter of economic fairness, obviously the conservative part of me wants to jump out of my brain and start arguing with myself. But if you look at it as a societal good where we can consume significantly less energy um, as a society by getting more efficient products that are better products. And, you know, for for um, a lot of people, that difference in, in $500 or $1,000 for the more efficient product is a lot of money. But if you can, you know, get that back in a rebate or some sort of incentive, I think that's really helpful um, to help guide people into making the right decision. Um, number four, building efficiency standards. I did commercial. Uh, honestly, I would have taken um, all three of these, but I didn't want to use up um, all three of mine on building efficiency standards. But again, these seem like common sense investments, especially at the commercial level, where you can make a building uh, incredibly efficient, probably cut your power use by somewhere between you know 10 and 30%. In any one commercial building, doesn't make a huge difference, but in every commercial building across the country, um, it could make a huge difference. And, and similar to what you know Jesse had said, I'm not saying that everyone has to go you know gut their buildings and, and, and rebuild them, but certainly commercial buildings require regular maintenance. And when it becomes time to, whether it's replace your windows or whether it's replace your HVAC systems or whatever it is um, to get a more efficient version, um, certainly makes sense. So a, a prospective uh, building efficiency standards I like a lot. And then five for me is carbon capture. I think this is huge because I, unlike again, many of you do believe that we will be using fossil fuels for the foreseeable and even the past foreseeable future. Um, but I also agree with you know every clean energy advocate and every climate advocate that you can't continue to emit carbon the way that we the way that we are. So I think a, a very sort of efficient and if we could scale it up to be more cost effective carbon capture, whether that's atmos atmospheric capture or whether that's directly from an industrial process or a power plant, um, can do a lot to sort of negate some of the debates that are being had right now. I know that there are people who have concerns about the way natural gas is produced and all that sort of stuff, but for the most part. If you could use natural gas as a power generation resource with zero or, or you know close to zero emissions, I think that would go a long way in tackling a lot of the technical uh, questions that that we all are you know so forced to discuss when we talk about decarbonizing our economy. All right, well, excellent insights from everyone here. Now's the time to say who won on the decarbonization factor. And I'm specifically going here for the bracket that had the greatest emissions reductions in the year 2050. Any guesses? Not Shane. 
<laughs> I also vote not Shane. Maybe Jesse. I bet you Jesse won. That's my guess. It was Brandon. Hey, hey. hey. Yeah, Brandon. The same as me. Hey, hey. Yes. Okay. Sandbag. So. Gonna have to hear this one breaks down. <laughs> I lowered expectations you. and then cleared them. Yeah. Let's call for the instant <laughs> wait, replay. Wait What's going on? Details. Wait till you hear the details. Wait a second. I want more. Give us more. All right. So Brandon came in first when it comes to where annual emissions sit in the year 2050. They declined 28.77% from the business as usual scenario in 2020 to his end point in 2050. But Jesse's bracket produced much more rapid and sustained emissions over the whole period. And so note that listeners keep, keep that in mind. Cumulative <laughs> emissions matter. Cumulative emissions matter. Exactly. It's the only thing the climate cares about. Indeed. It's a big deal. Those emissions stay up in the atmosphere for centuries. So definitely something for our audience to consider. And of course, we'll get into the feasibility of all these plans in just a minute. So first, going back to Brandon. The building policies in his plan really give him an edge in the latter years, but a big but, it also made his policy extremely expensive. So starting almost like immediately. A high class taste. Shame on you. Immediately in 2020, $100 billion in spending, and it stays quite high through the about 2040, when finally people start to see some savings. And in 2050, you could actually see savings greater than $100 billion according to the energy innovation model. But you've got to have a lot of public support to spend that money up front and continue spending about $100 billion for the next decade. Well, for everyone who can't see us, which is everyone, Brandon is right now wearing a Warren for president <laughs> sweatshirt. So as long as they soak the rich as they as they plan to, I'm sure this money means nothing. wealth tax. To the rest of us who are more concerned about people's day-to-day -day, uh, you know, ability to pay bills, of course. I, I really don't feel like $100 billion is that much a year to spend on these things when you think about how much revenue a carbon tax could raise for example. My plan raise explicitly is designed to raise $100 billion every year for the next three decades. All right. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Well, this is embarrassing. Well, I guess we're only doing power sector. That's yeah. true. We're but only so, doing okay. power sector. And these yeah. are just five policies. So, you know, presumably you'd want to do yeah. some more. Yeah. For, for our listeners, context, the Department of Defense budget is what, $750 billion a year. So when we, yeah, we 100, right. 100 billion oh, yeah. sounds like a lot to maybe the average person, but like in the federal government and what they spend in the grand scheme of things, not that much. Fair I enough. I agree. All right. Well, just for the sake of this discussion, I think it's interesting to see where everyone's policies uh, you know, land and then what else you'd have budget to do. So in second place was Jesse Jenkins. He was very close on Brandon's heels. His plan achieved a 27.07% reduction in emissions from business as usual in 2020 to his policy endpoint in 2050. But as I noted, his decarbonization trajectory was steeper than others. And I think that's due to the phased in carbon price, which no one else put in place but him. And also your near term costs, Jesse, I think were more palatable around $35 billion per year in the early years. And that really very quickly starts resulting in savings or quicker than others uh, around the 2037 uh, time frame. And then there'll be savings getting close to $40 billion per year at the 2050 uh, time frame. So overall, almost as much emissions reductions as Brandon in 2050, greater reductions over time, lower near-term costs. You can maybe free up some dollars to put toward other policies if you wanted to. And so, yeah, I think we've got another strong contender. 
Next up, we have Leah. You were very, very close to Jesse in terms of where emissions end up in 2050. Your policy bracket caused carbon emissions to fall 26.74% over the period, whereas Jesse's bracket achieved 27.07% reduction. Taking those 19, oh, na- those 19 million so metric close. tons to the Second bank, Leah. That last <laughs> second I, shot, Jesse. And how much did I cost? Your costs are also similar to Jesse's, but overall a little higher. And that came down to the type of building policy you put in place. So according to the experts at Energy Innovation who helped me work through this, they pointed out that the retrofits really are quite expensive, which is the same problem that Brandon had. Retrofits cost a lot. And so, you know, question there of the bang for your buck you get versus another type of policy. So your annual cost came in around $35 billion per year through 2030, followed by declines. Savings were achieved for the first time in 2047, settling at a savings of $17.5 billion per year in 2050. So me and Jesse are very close to each other in cost and emissions reductions, which is not surprising since we chose almost the same thing. <laughs> yeah. One distinction here is that your overall trajectory of emissions reductions was closer to Brandon's, where meaningful cuts really only start to appear at the end of the decade rather than in the immediate term. The more rapid emissions cuts are from the carbon price, which is is pegged in order know, to kill off coal magic. over the next decade. The magic of the market. Right. Well, I mean, one thing that's interesting about this to me is that there's a lot of agreement and maybe efforts could be channeled into things we know are going to give us, you know, really great to deliver really great benefits. Which brings us to Shane, who is the only contestant not to choose a clean energy standard. So I guess there isn't total agreement on the path forward here. Well, it was it was lower on my list as as you saw, but yeah, I didn't think it was the most immediate near term uh, uh, priority. Fair enough. Well, your policy bracket resulted in minimal reductions by twenty fifty. There's almost no change from the business as usual Wait, through twenty thirty. I'm looking at this graph right now. Yeah, it's relatively modest until about twenty thirty. You see your your line start to split off there from the business as usual, and then in twenty fifty you get a nine point four percent emissions decrease from the twenty twenty business as usual number. How did I do on cost? On cost, let's see here. So you were only around seven billion dollars in spending per year near term in the 2021 time frame. So the lowest, of course, it remains around that number, though, until you're definitely still, you know, losing money until literally 2050 when you finally in that year start to see some savings. And that is because of the high cost of carbon capture and sequestration. So. No, you still got to justify a big spending bill. All right, well, let's just really, really quick. And I know we're going to have a discussion about this. I cut it from what six thousand to fifty-two hundred, as opposed to everyone else from six thousand to about four thousand. You're referring to the policy impact in metric tons. But mine costs seven billion a year, as opposed to like a hundred billion a year. That's a very efficient reduction in carbon emissions. I'm sure the climate will be happy about that, Shane. And yeah, I mean, if yours, if your policy set was the only one to get implemented versus one that. Was not but then palatable what will we politically. Pay disaster mitigation because you know you're not really addressing the problem. So there's a consequence <laughs> to that too. I mean, it's true that you you might be able to get the low hanging fruit and do that more efficiently, but we've got to go faster and deeper than that. And if the power sector can't get its emissions down to zero by 2050, then forget getting to net zero for the whole economy, and that's going to put our climate stabilization goals out of reach. Right. And we should also note that Shane, you put in a hundred percent carbon capture and sequestration, which is technically feasible according to the folks at energy innovation but that 
is an incredible amount. So it's even questionable whether that's achievable. Now, the state of the art ones, as I understand it right now, can do like 96. That's not I mean, it's not 100, but it's also not, you know. But then you have to spread it out and make it 100 percent available. Yes. Yeah, no, no, it's, no doubt it's tough, but I thought we all just agreed that sometimes you have to do tough things to get the job done. So that was my sort of tough thing because I think it solves, I do think a clean energy standard would be very helpful. I didn't have it in my top five, both because I knew everyone else would, and also because I wanted to talk about some of these end use, um, some of these end use uh, policies. But realistically, I think carbon capture, if it actually becomes efficient and, and, and cost effective, can really do a lot to help reduce power sector emissions a lot more quickly than and, and more cost effectively than some of the other stuff. I also have to note on yours while we're harping on it, uh, your electricity sector emissions, if you break it down by sector, like they're still really high. I mean, everyone else actually at least got pretty close to zero for that sector alone. So we should note that if we focus on the power sector, uh, buildings still had some emissions in them because uh, we know we limited everyone's policy picks, but we got pretty close to our net zero goal for electricity with Brandon, Jesse, and Leah's brackets. But Shane, your emissions in that sector are still quite high. So again, well off of any climate goal we need to reach. Well, that's because they had explicit policies that were 100% clean. Of course, they got to zero emissions. Do you think that that policy is politically unfeasible? Is that why you didn't pick it in part? I think the policy, if that's the end of the of the statement, is politically impossible, more so than infeasible. I do think, you know, some of what we saw with like the Clean Futures Act, which we discussed on a past show, where they allow for a little bit of trading, a little bit of wiggle room. Um, I think that's actually a lot more politically feasible than than most people understand right now. I don't think it's going to get enacted this year, but I actually see that as something where once people understand what it is, how it works, and the market mechanisms that you can use to achieve it, I think it's going to be closer to politically feasible than some of these other big picture items. One last note on yours. There was a tax incentive for carbon capture and sequestration in the tax bill. 25Q, is it? But 45Q. 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 And I don't think anyone's been able to take real advantage of it because the IRS hasn't even clarified it yet. So on, and when it comes to real world, the rolling out of that solution has proven tricky. Yeah, the guidance came out last week um, from IRS. But it, it, it is. It's going to be very tricky. You have till 2024, I think, January 1, 2024, to quote unquote break ground. And that's what the IRS guidance goes on to define what that means. Okay, we'll keep it going with round two. Brandon, you had the greatest reductions in the year 2050, but you also had a lot of spending involved with your bracket. So do you want to defend why it's the one to vote for? First of all, do you have a net here, Julia? A net? You want to swoosh? I want to cut it, cut it down. Cut it down? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you said I, I... dunk, but I was like, you're a little short for that. <laughs> oh, oh man. That was good. That got me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Okay, I'll defend the political feasible feasibleness of my picks. On the you should defend the feasibility too. Feasibility, yeah, <laughs> feasibleness. Uh, um, on the carbon-free electricity standard, we've seen many states pass this already, uh, including you know purple states like New Mexico. And so I think as people see that this is working um, and not causing economic harm, in fact, could be helping your economy. Uh, I think that hopefully at the federal level, they'll see this as a, as a path forward and, and could be done, right? Because it's happening in many states. I think it's one third of all people now live in a jurisdiction that has 100% you know, carbon-free electricity standard on the books. Uh, so that should be a good um, sort of you know, example for the government to, to, to utilize. Uh, on the grid scale electricity storage, Shane had that in his uh, picks. So I feel like storage is a bipartisan um, issue. We see with what Senator Murkowski and others are putting forward in the Congress right now is going to involve storage. 
Uh, so you saw the DOE put out their their storage grand challenge that you had on the last show uh, with the assistant secretary from ERE. So it feels like storage is something where we can find some common ground, as you know Shane had included in his, along with the uh, building energy efficiency standards. Uh, you know Shane also had that in his uh, picks too. So that seems like that's something where Republicans oh, and Democrats, yeah, can find some common ground. <laughs> and and, go, and and on that point, and I think Jesse did a good job, you know, discussing this about new newly purchased equipment but when you tell someone all you have to do is spend you know ten thousand dollars and you'll save a hundred bucks a month that's not an attractive proposition if you don't have ten thousand dollars up front but if you're already replacing a unit or doing you know some sort of retrofit it's very helpful in knowing that your marginal cost increase is quite low and your marginal cost benefit can actually be uh, pretty significant and finally just on retrofitting existing buildings um you know there are commercial uh applications of this happening. I sit on the board of Spark Fund. That's what they do. And they're finding cost-effective ways to do this in new models of you know, sub- subscription-based models that can make it easier for customers uh, to, to do this. So I think that there is sort of low-hanging fruit on that that we can go after. I do have to add, though, Brandon, uh, the experts at uh, Energy Innovation pointed out when they ran the uh, curtailment factors for your bracket yours had the highest levels so a lot of renewables getting curtailed uh, which could create potentially reliability issues for the grid so not only is it cost well, i got the grid scale storage yeah wasn't sufficient according to their models well, you know you didn't have transmission in me. there well you know well, we can do more storage <laughs> that's on you <laughs> so don't they flare all this natural gas like what, so we curtail some like cheap sun and wind like is that the end of the world up for our listeners to decide, I suppose. Yeah. But I think it tees up uh, uh, Jesse's uh, comments next. Jesse, talk a little bit more well, about like your bracket. Like the natural gas, like curtailing solar and wind isn't like creating. I know, but you could have upgraded the grid and had benefits that way, more efficiency. Uh, Jesse, over to you. Why do you think your policy is uh, the most competitive here, both on decarbonization and feasibility? Well, I think that it, it like uh, like Brandon's, it does include include a number of measures that have had bipartisan support. So, clean electricity standards have been supported um, in the past in a bipartisan fashion, and we'll see going forward. There are another significant efforts right now to build bipartisan support around a current proposal in the House. Um, and as we've seen, we've seen them passing uh, across a number of states. Uh, so, like renewable portfolio standard policies, really proliferated. Throughout the 2000s, we're now seeing clean electricity standards as sort of the en vogue um, policy option for the state level. And so just in the last few years, you know, about a half dozen such policies enacted. And I think that that's going to get attention on Capitol Hill. We're seeing uh, a number of utilities from all over the country, you know, including some red and purple states, uh, you know, committing to similar emissions reduction goals and I think getting comfortable with the concept of a clean electricity standard. So I think there's a lot of potential for movement there. And it's a really powerful and and efficient policy. It's a market-based mechanism, so utilities can trade amongst themselves and find the lowest cost resources and the lowest hanging fruit. And I think that should have appeal to business and cost-conscious parties. Uh, It's a flexible mechanism. Uh, You can include sort of banking and and borrowing over time, so you sort of smooth out a lot of the you know potential price volatility. Um, and uh, it can be just, if designed well, it can be just as efficient as an emissions cap or carbon pricing policy. Uh, if designed poorly, it won't be quite as efficient, but uh, in, in an ideal circumstance, it can be just as efficient where it can credit resources for kind of fuel th- switching between, even between fossil resources that have different emissions. So, you know, in places where 
uh, coal has not phased out yet. Natural gas uh, displacing coal in the near term can deliver rapid and affordable, almost free emissions reductions. Um, and I think that's an important uh, piece to capture too. So a well-designed CES can really provide the kind of strong regulatory and market incentives for the sector to reorient itself. And then the rest of what I'm proposing is really to support that. Well, you know, what do you envision the role of nuclear being in that clean energy standard? Because that's, you know, that factors in hydro, geothermal, renewables, and nuclear, according to this policy simulator. In your mind, how much would nuclear make up of that? Well, so I think there's two questions. What about the existing fleet? And that's where my uh, recommendation to extend the nuclear uh, licensing to 80 years comes in. Uh, And the second question is, what about new nuclear construction? So take those each in turn. For the existing fleet, I mean, the only way we're going to be able to cut emissions that steeply, and I'm talking about, you know, 75 to 80 percent by 2030, is if we keep the 20 percent of our electricity that comes from carbon uh, or, you know, emissions-free nuclear today uh, and build on that foundation, shut down the coal fleet as quickly as possible, um, and ramp up our renewables over the next decade uh, and sort of build on that clean energy foundation. So, and then if we extend the operating life to 80 years, much of the existing fleet can continue running on through the 2040s and, and maybe even into 2050, might have a, you know at least half the fleet continuing to operate through 2050. And so that's really going to help us get to that net zero goal as fast and at low as cost as possible. As far as new nuclear, it's really, I think, an open question for me. One of the things that's good about a clean electricity standard is that it's focused on ends and not means. So it's focused on the emissions reductions and the clean electricity that we want. And it doesn't overly specify a narrower set of tools that are um, the only ones that are allowed to, you know, to achieve that goal. So it's an ends-focused policy instead of a means-focused policy, like a renewable portfolio standard would be or a subsidy or mandate for a particular technology. And I think that's really important because we don't actually know what technologies we um, are going to see fill out the team and uh, support the starring roles from wind and solar in our decarbonization team. Uh, it, it, what we need in my research has shown is one or more firm low carbon technologies or clean firm technologies. And by firm, I mean a technology that it, or an electricity source that is available whenever we need it, any time of the year for as long as the system needs to run that technology. And that makes uh, firm technologies a really important complement to the weather-dependent wind and solar technologies that go up and down as the weather changes. And also to energy-constrained resources like batteries, where you know they're really good for operating within the day and smoothing out some of the variability or shifting solar from you know, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. But they're, they're going to run out if we try to run them for many hours at a time. And so we need something else we can rely on that can run for sustained periods of weeks or even months when we have a deficit in wind and solar production. And that could be nuclear, but it might not be. And we need to be open, I think, to a range of technologies, some of them renewable, like enhanced geothermal energy systems or biogas, uh, and others that are non-renewable, like nuclear and natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration, if it can get the capture rate up you know, close to 100%. And today, I think all those technologies face challenges. Um, if I had had the option to put this on my list, I probably would have put proactive R&D and early market subsidies for all of those firm low-carbon options so that over the next decade, they can scale up and mature and come down in cost and uh, be available to round out the clean energy team in the 2030s and 2040s. One thing I have to note here for both your and Leah's bracket is that you both chose the, that extension for the life of nuclear power plants, adding an additional 20 years. 
Uh, Energy Innovation actually, because it uses um, EIA numbers, their business as usual case does assume that many of the existing plants will continue on. Uh, That doesn't affect your decarbonization numbers too much because even if those plants were to go offline, they do assume that renewables would replace those nuclear uh, plants. However, it would affect your costs. So uh, assuming those plants do stay on, the existing ones, an additional 20 years, the cost savings from your plants could actually be lower than what we see in the graphs. It's just hard to reflect that given the differential from the business as usual, because it, again, does assume that those plants will be economic to keep online, those existing ones. Yeah, and on the existing nuclear front, I mean, it's true that we could replace those resources with additional renewables build. In practice, that's not what what has happened. We've we've replaced retiring nuclear plants in Vermont and in um, in, uh, California and elsewhere with a mix of some new renewables, but mostly natural gas. And that's because nuclear provides that firm role in our system. And so it's hard to replace it one for one with variable wind and solar. You can replace some of the energy uh, throughout the year, but not all of it. Um, and even if you can, you know, if you sort of assume you have a hard cap on uh, the amount of clean electricity you need to get, as in the case of a clean electricity standard being in place, it's still true that every megawatt hour of new wind and solar that we use to replace clean uh, or carbon-free nuclear is a megawatt hour that we aren't using to shut down an existing fossil uh, power plant faster. So even if we, you know, did replace nuclear with renewables, we could go even further in emissions reductions even faster if we were able to bring that new renewable resource online to displace natural gas or coal. And since, as I mentioned earlier, cumulative carbon emissions are what drives climate change, uh, it's important to keep that opportunity cost in mind as well. So we want to cut emissions uh, to zero by 2050, but we want to do it as fast as possible as well and in, as economically as possible. And that's where I think the nuclear lifetime extensions are, are really important for those of us who care a lot about climate change. All right, Leah, now please over to you. You had a very similar bracket to Jesse's, as you noted. One key difference was the carbon tax. You did not include one. I'm curious, do you have any reason for that or do you want to push back on Jesse's use of it? I had a very intentional reason not to include a carbon price. I thought it would be provocative not to do it. I want to argue that my bracket is the Green New Deal plan amongst the four of us. So for the listeners out there who support that approach, you should definitely vote for me. I think when we talk about climate solutions, we have to think about a few things. First, is it at the scale of the problem? So ideally, if I could, I would have picked a clean electricity standard by 2035 or 2040. I would have done that. That wasn't an option in the choices. But if I could, I would have cleaned up the the electricity system even faster. And then, just like Brandon was saying, I would have electrified the transportation sector, electrified the building sector, cleaned up those three sectors. And that gives us about 70% of the emission reductions. So if we do that by 2035, which is the plan that Jay Inslee and Elizabeth Warren have, that puts us on track to what the IPCC says is necessary to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Because what you need to do is cut emissions by about half by 2030. So I think that's really important. And when it comes to cost, I was thinking a lot about this. The question is not just how much does it cost. It is also who pays for it. 
There is a distributional and equity question behind how we think about climate policy. And for a long time, we have taken a utilitarian approach because economics has been so dominant in the way we think about climate policy. We say $1 spent by a fossil fuel company is the same as $1 spent by a poor person. And that is just not true. So I would rather push the costs onto um, the federal government, onto corporations, than push it onto everyday citizens who are dealing with massive income inequality and wage stagnation over the last few decades. And that is why I did not pick a carbon price, because carbon prices and carbon taxes are regressive. And yes, you can think about rebating money back to people, but a lot of the ways people talk about the point of a carbon price is as a revenue source. So if you're rebating money back, then you know, you're know you not getting any revenues with the federal government. And in places where these dividends have been used, such as Canada, it's uh, not clear that it actually increases support for the policy. Because I think it's really obvious to people when their gas bill goes up at the pump, when their electricity costs go up for their monthly budget, and it's not as clear when they're getting a little bit of taxes back or a dividend back at the end of the year. There may be ways to design a policy like a carbon price and with a dividend to make it more salient to people, those rebates, but I don't think that that's been shown yet in practice in any countries in the world. So my goal with the proposal that I put forward was to reduce as many emissions as possible, but to do it in a way that didn't stress out the everyday citizen and that recognized the twin crisis of income inequality and the climate crisis together, uh, that we need to provide support for the public to do the transition. And that's, for example, why I chose retrofits for existing residential buildings to help everyday citizens make this transition. Um, so yeah, that's my plan. And uh, for those who like the Green New Deal, you should definitely vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> we should note that uh, if you go a layer deeper into the energy innovation policy simulator, you can change the timelines for deployment. You're right. I didn't really give you guys the option to do that. But a note to our listeners that this tool, again, is for uh, for discussion purposes. And there's a lot more detail you could go into. So thanks for clarifying that in your comments, Leah. Jesse, did you have a point to make? Yeah, can I talk a little bit about the role of carbon pricing in my, because as, as Leah knows from our long conversations about this, I largely agree on on the role of carbon pricing and its limitations particularly in driving emissions reductions outside of the electricity sector, where a $10 price on carbon really is only $0.10 cents or even $0.09 cents per gallon ga uh, increase in the price of gasoline. And that's really not going to change anybody's behavior. I mean, you, I drive past gasoline stations on opposite sides of the street that have more than $0.10 cent price differences, and they are both just happily filling people's cars all the time. So it's, you know, at that level, it's not really going to make a big imp impact. And I think the kinds of Pricing levels that were required on the order of hundreds of dollars per ton to really drive behavior outside of the power sector aren't going to be politically, politically feasible. The reason I included it in the electricity sector is because when it comes to coal and natural gas, you do have a really uh, a narrow substitution opportunity there, a really small difference in price between the two, where a, a small carbon price can drive big emissions reductions there between um, natural gas and renewables and coal with, you know, even at $20 a ton in 2030, you can see a lot of additional emissions reductions. And second, the, the main reason I included was actually for equity reasons um, to say, you know, similar concerns that Leah has. A clean electricity standard has the one downside in which that it doesn't raise any revenue. And that makes it hard to do redistrib redistributional policy with it um, to make sure that uh, those who can afford to pay the most are the ones who are paying the bill. 
uh, it's going to translate to higher rates um, for ratepayers in their electricity bills. And so what my plan does is it takes the revenue from the carbon price. And before you even see an increase in your electricity bill, you would see a credit on your bill that is paid for by the carbon price and the tax on polluters. Uh, It's basically extracting rent and profits from fossil generators in the power sector and transferring that to to households and businesses paying electricity before they even see their bill go up. So your price per kilowatt hour or it might go up a little bit, but your total household bill is going to be offset by the revenue from the carbon price. And that's why I think that a carbon price could actually be politically feasible and, and important in lower, both lowering the overall cost of the policy in the electricity sector specifically and making it a more equitable policy where polluters pay their fair share and not just households and, and businesses who um, are cost conscious and need to make sure that their bills don't go up. Shane, do you think Republicans would actually get on board with a carbon price? Are you feeling any? Before he answers, I just want to say that's why I left it out of my top five. Oh. Um, because I didn't think it was politically feasible. Yeah, I mean, we we looked at, not, not looked at doing, but just sort of looked at every option that came out of CBO every year as an exercise. And the carbon price, the biggest sort of uh, strike against it was the equity argument. It was regressive, as, as Leah discussed. I think it's hard to say because I think you know, under the current status quo, do I think any Republicans will line up behind a carbon tax? Probably not. I mean, other than the one or two that have introduced mm-hmm. carbon tax bills. But you might remember that either last year or the year before, they moved a resolution on the floor. They didn't even need to move. It doesn't have any binding impact in law. Just saying, you know, a carbon tax is awful and it hurts everyone. and It's terrible. I think what's interesting is that anyone who understands the economics of energy can understand that compared to some of the other policies that people are promoting, a carbon tax could actually be a more market-friendly mechanism, as you know most people in this space know. And I just tend to wonder, once Capitol Hill Republicans catch up to Republicans in the states and a lot of just Republican voters and understand a solution is necessary and will happen with or without you, then the question becomes, do you want to be part of that process? And is a carbon tax a good tool to help reduce emissions when compared to some of the other things that you might be forced to eat? Because I just don't think we live in a space right now where it's feasible to say there will not be a climate policy within the next 10 or 15 years. So once you start to, to, to work under that paradigm, there is going to be a climate policy. I think a carbon tax might become more popular again. And then really quick, wrapping that up, um, you know, big energy companies are advocating for this, whether it's good PR or whether they actually believe it. If I'm a very conservative Republican who hates everything that has to do with climate, at least I have the chamber and, you know, ExxonMobil and and these big CEOs of major banks saying, no, no, this is fine with us. This is totally okay. It provides a little political cover compared to some of the other things that are being discussed. Mm, Yes. Lots of layers there. Leo, do you have a quick point to make before we close out? Oh, I was just going to go back to Jesse's rejoinder to my plan. I I take the point. I knew that if I put a carbon price in, I would get lots of points in terms of reducing the cost of of my plan. I understand that. Um, But I intentionally chose to not do it. And I will say that retrofitting uh, residential buildings, everyday people's buildings, is more equitable than the commercial building retrofit that Jesse put forward. So now that there's basically no difference between the two plans that we put forward, we can nitpick over the very micro differences between us. It's significant. I mean, yeah, I only limited you guys to five. So that distinction matters. I think it's an important point, and I concede that there could be political advantages to, to you know, investing, sending rebates and investments <laughs> to households instead of businesses. There can be political advantages on the other side, too. You know, the small businesses and, uh, and you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce are pretty influential stakeholders as well. So 
defraying costs for businesses who really don't care much about, you know, whether their electricity comes from one source or another necessarily, but definitely care if their bills go up um, and might be activated to fight against policy if their bills are going to go up a lot does matter too. So yeah, I agree on the equity point. I, I went back and forth about both policies, and if I could pick both, I would. Uh, I ultimately decided on commercial businesses because I think commercial interests are much more organized stakeholders and more likely to create political problems if we don't address some of their concerns. That doesn't mean it's the right thing to do from an equity perspective, but I do think it. Um, it my calculus came down to the, the raw politics. There's far too much agreement for a March Madness uh, face-off here. I don't know, guys. <laughs> But I think that's where we'll leave it for our policy overview. Thank you guys so much for both picking the policies and walking us through the reasoning. I think we'll have one quick lightning round. If you could summarize your policy picks and what you thought was unique and, and no great about them, uh, let's do that. Quickly around the horn, Brandon, what is, what's your final case? My case is that I had the most greenhouse gas emission reductions uh, with my plan, and I also think it was very politically feasible. It did not include a carbon price, had common ground with a Republican like Shane on several of mine, and I think it's where we need to be with the federal government, where we're setting performance standards and making investments alongside of that. Along with a slightly higher price and potentially curtailment issues, but you did address those. Yeah, and I just do want to add, you know, as <laughs> as the winner of this first round, you know, as as, as 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 a small young young guy growing up reading some policy, you know, to be able to go up against like the North Carolina and Duke of policy on this with Jesse and Leah and and and, and beat them in yeah. this in this first round was, you know, very uh, humbling, humbling and gratifying. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a dream come true for me to to beat uh, like a number one seed like like those two. <laughs> Uh, I owe it all to, I just want to thank Steve Chu, uh, a mentor of mine, you know, for teaching me the ropes on this. <laughs> and, when do we, the music? Yeah, the music. music. I would like when I now enter the room for you to play We Are the Champions, I think it would be appropriate. You have a rider now? Jeez. All right, Shane? All right, I'll be quicker and less arrogant than that. So That's <laughs> a change. That's a change of pace. Um, no, no I, think, I think what I realized listening to everyone, I think where, where I would make the case for mine and where I think it's not as different as, as people think if you sell my longer list that I had to curtail the five is that I didn't start with the power system macro, like a clean energy standard or a carbon tax or something like that and whittle down. I started at what the consumer can do. So efficiency in the building, demand response. Other than carbon capture, really all of mine were customer facing. And I guess my theory of the case is that if people understand that it's easy to engage with um, emissions reductions on a personal level and they find that they can save money or, or have a better lifestyle or whatever the benefits are, it becomes more politically feasible. And I think the upstream things are going to happen anyway. As the cost of storage comes down, as the cost of renewables come down, you're watching people use cleaner sources of energy state to state. So I guess my thought was tackle it with the consumer, get them to understand how to reduce energy usage, help them save money doing it, and the rest of it sort of flows from there. Jesse? Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to contest Brandon's uh, win here on technical grounds. We're going to throw it up to the uh, replay booth to go ahead and look at this one. But uh, I have the lowest cumulative CO2 emissions and the fastest emissions reductions, and that matters too. So I'm going to go ahead and call this one a, a, a win on technical grounds. Uh, <laughs> so nice try, Brandon. No, I, I, we had the lowest, nearly the, nearly the lowest emissions, second place there, but the lowest cumulative emissions. For those of us who care about the urgency of climate change, cumulative emissions are what matter the most. So I'm going to go ahead uh, and lean in on that. And also note that the my policy was designed to keep household and business electrical bills from going up, uh, you know, to keep the most cost-effective policy overall and to use 
revenue raised from taxing polluters, um, carbon polluters, to offset the costs on households and businesses and keep their bills down. And I think that makes it the most politically saleable in the end, um, because what matters the most to folks is the most salient uh, immediate impact on their household um, and business bills. Leah, we'll give you the final shot on net. Does that make sense? <laughs> Not really. Oh, okay. In a hockey well, way, sure. Points for trying. You can barely tell the difference between Brandon, Jesse, or my reductions if you look at the lines. Yes, it's true that because Jesse does the carbon price, he gets faster reductions. You can just stop there, Leah. That's hypothetical okay. CES, <laughs> <laughs> my hypothetical CES is going by 2035. So had I had that, I definitely would have beaten them both. And I think that mine is not just about how much we pay, which is a lot less than Brandon's, but also who pays. And I focus a lot more on equity and justice in my approach. So I think that people who like the Green New Deal like my plan the best. Love it. <laughs> well, we will be sharing the graphs from everyone's policy brackets on our Twitter feed and on LinkedIn and other places. So you guys can see what we're talking about. We'll share the policy list that we uh, uh, had our contestants pick from. And we'll have a future episode coming up with the experts at Energy Innovation to walk us through what the simulator does, what the assumptions were that were part of this. But I think all in all, a very fruitful discussion, lots of points of agreement and some clear differences. So thank you all so much for coming on the show. Can't wait for the inevitable Jigger tweet on this where he tells how wrong we all were and how much better he is at this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have him on next. Energy Gang Sugar Shaw. All right, that's rounding out for this episode of Political Climate and our third episode in the Path to Zero series with Third Way. Hat tip also goes to Stephen Lacey and Shale Khan at The Interchange for coming up with the deep decarbonization draft. They're an inspiration for this. Also, shout out to at EcoStew on Twitter. Uh, he recently posed a question about policies and that also got the wheels turning. Finally, thanks to my husband for coming up with the wacky song that you heard at the beginning of the show. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to Political Climate on pretty much any podcasting service, Apple, Google, Stitcher, uh, all of the above. So hit subscribe there and catch all of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. Thanks again and until soon.